Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. It is great to see you here today on a beautiful, uh, sunny morning. I look forward to opening God's Word and joining together in worshiping our risen King Jesus. Today is the third Sunday of Easter, or uh, third Sunday of Easter Eastertide. Uh, as Kyle mentioned earlier, every Sunday, every day is a reason to celebrate as a Christ follower, to celebrate the resurrection, because it's in that very power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that we go forth, that we find new life in Him, that we are being raised up daily in that same power, the power of the resurrection. Thank God for the work of Jesus. Thanks for what Jesus has done for us. So we have a chance every day, and every Sunday is kind of a special time for us to celebrate. Thank you, Jesus, that you came, you lived, you died, and you rose again. Uh, so uh, today we're going to open up God's Word, and for real, we are done with the Law and Prophet series. Last week was kind of a bonus track, kind of a last bit that we forgot, and, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine bit. Uh, but I didn't come up with anything else to do for Law and Prophet. So we are done. And in fact, today is a standalone sermon. A standalone sermon, or a one-hit wonder, as you might want to call it, uh, is not part of a series. I typically teach in series, is, but uh, today's just kind of one of those in-between. Before we jump into our next series, which is called Imprint, which is a uh, survey, a study of the classical Christian spiritual disciplines, uh, I want to talk about something that I think is kind of important in understanding our identity in Christ, what God has been up to in calling a people to himself, not just the Jews, but then going beyond the Jews to, to call all tribes and all tongues to himself, and what that means for you and me. So I'm pretty excited about that. Now, uh, this morning I've been getting some strange looks. Um, I think it's because the most observant among us have noticed that there's something new about me. Now, what is it? Now, some of you are saying, well, is it a, is it a new haircut? Could be. Is it a new outfit? No. Is it a new attitude? No. No. Something far beyond that, guys. What's new about me is that just this week, I learned... I learned. I learned about heirloom apples. And you're like, that's it. He must have learned about heirloom apples. He learned about heirloom apples and about how grafting works in apple orchards. I went into this week not knowing anything really, I mean functionally, functionally illiterate about heirloom apples and the grafting of heirloom apples in apple orchards. Anyone else learn about this this week? Oh man, am I about to blow you away. I spent the first part of my week in St. Louis uh, at uh, what's called a Sin Network Send Network Gathering uh, with Midwest, with church planners and pastors from across the Midwest uh, for a time of worship and prayer and, and learning and growing together. Uh, but on Tuesday morning, there I was. I sat for breakfast by a friend of mine named Charles, uh, who owns and operates a small apple orchard just outside of Springfield, Illinois. And Charles starts talking about heirloom apples. Now, on the surface, I might not be interested, especially in the morning, uh, to learn about heirloom apples. But Charles starts talking about heirloom apples and uh, how they are preserved and how they are propagated through the work of orchard owners um, all across the country and really all, all around the world. I did not get out of bed Tuesday morning expecting to have my mind blown. But this, my friends, blew my mind. 
When Charles started talking about grafting a branch from one type of apple tree onto another, boom went the dynamite. It was amazing. My socks, gone. My mind, blown. Grafting a branch from one apple tree onto another tree is a thing that happens. And it's amazing to me. Did you know that a single apple tree, uh, take for example a red delicious, a red delicious apple tree, it can support and sustain any number of branches from other apple varieties. <laughs> That's the sound of jaws hitting the floor. <laughs> An orchard worker can take a starter branch from say a Macintosh apple tree and graft it into the branch of a red delicious apple tree. I don't think you guys are as floored by this as I was. Um, I'll try to make it more interesting here. That new branch, that new branch once grafted in will begin to draw water and nutrients from the tree's root source. It'll start drawing water and nutrients from the tree's root source and it will begin thriving just like the other naturally occurring branches. Grafting. I don't know why that, that, that seemed to emphasize it, right? <laughs> By carefully taking a starter branch from a donor tree, an orchard worker cuts a notch in the branch of the host tree, seats that starter branch, and then secures it with binding. And then over time, what's happening? Cells begin to merge. Tissues and fibers begin to intertwine. And then those nutrients in the water begin to flow. And then soon, that grafted branch, it perks up. That grafted branch begins producing buds. And then that grafted branch eventually produces fruit. And this is the amazing part to me get my glasses situated so they don't fly off when I say this. The Macintosh apple branch doesn't become a red delicious apple branch. The, the Macintosh, the grafted branch, stays its kind, stays its type. If it's a Macintosh apple branch, it doesn't become a red delicious apple tree branch even though it's been grafted into a red delicious apple tree. It remains a Macintosh apple tree branch and it produces Macintosh apples. That's amazing to me. In fact, an orchard owner could trim back all of the red delicious apple branches and graft Macintosh apple branches onto that tree in their place. Or they could take any other apple tree variety and this red delicious apple tree could be growing all different kinds of apples and not red delicious apples. You could have a red delicious apple tree growing all Macintosh apples. Or you could have a red delicious apple tree growing a dozen types of different apples. Is this amazing to you? You might be saying, well, I, I don't believe he grew up on a farm. And I didn't. This might be why it's interesting to me. But here's the thing, here's the takeaway for me. What matters in, 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 in working in an orchard and in grafting and in, in, in producing healthy, delicious apples is having a good root source. 
Having good rootstock that you can tap into, that you can uh, help the naturally occurring apples to grow and thrive, but then also being able to graft in others and seeing them thrive and bringing diversity and variety into your orchard. As long as the branches are tapped into a vibrant, life-giving source, they will grow and they will thrive as part of that tree. Does anyone feel better that you know this now? Wait, did some of you already know this? Okay, I see some. All right. Richard knew that. Okay. Well, anyway, you might be able to see here where I'm going. Okay? You might see where I'm going with this. There is a powerful parallel between the grafting of apple trees, apple tree branches, and the gospel of Jesus. A powerful parallel between the, the, the work of an, in an orchard and the mission of God in the world. And that's what I'm excited to tell you about today. As you read scripture, you find that often the, the writers are referring, they are utilizing uh, agricultural metaphors. They oftentimes speak in agricultural metaphors. Why is that? Why is it so common for Jesus and the New Testament writers and even the Old Testament writers to refer to agricultural uh, metaphors or images? Okay, it was part of their lifestyle. What's that? Yeah, it was common. Right? Uh, they did this because uh, Jesus' uh, listeners, uh, the apostles' hearers, they possessed an intimate understanding of how farming worked. They, in a lot of ways, lived closer to the land than we do. Now, not all of Jesus' listeners, or Paul's listeners, or others, were farmers or shepherds, but they all lived among farmers and shepherds. They all lived in close proximity to those who were farmers and shepherds. Like I said, closer to the land. They lived in what was called an agrarian society. So when Jesus talked about us branches being connected to himself as the vine, people were familiar with how vineyards worked, right? Or when Paul speaks uh, of Gentiles as being wild olive branches being grafted into the olive tree of faith in Yahweh, there wasn't a lot of translation or explanation necessary. People understood their natural world. Now, while this image may not be as familiar to us because we live in a non-agrarian milieu, <laughs> I always look for opportunities to use that word, milieu, Context. Okay, in a, our, we're, we're in a non-agrarian society for the most part. Because we uh, don't have this resident uh, natural understanding of how agrarian practices work, this lesson is important for us to hear and understand. And here it is. The type of branch or tree... Uh, the type of branch or the tree, it isn't itself, it isn't the most important part. It's the root source that nourishes it that matters the most. So whether you're working in an orchard, grafting branches, or you're following after Jesus, entering into the life of faith, understand what matters most is the root source. That which nourishes, nourishes and causes to thrive everything else. It's not the branches, it's not the tree. It's the root source. And so today, we're going to spend some time in Scripture. I'm going to read with you some uh, extended passages. So kind of settle in. Uh, if you have your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to open and follow along. But uh, we're going to read some extended passages. And this first one is in Romans chapter 11. Here we find the Apostle Paul talking about grafting. 
talking about the Gentiles being grafted in to God's family tree. So let's look at Romans chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 24. I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, His undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. And few have, a few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened, as the scriptures say. God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day they have shut their eyes so they do not see, and closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble, and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see, and let their backs be bent forever. Verse 11, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. Does everyone know who the Gentiles are? The non-Jewish people. People outside of the tribes of Israel. Okay? So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me, the Apostle Paul, as the Apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want someone to make the people of Israel, I want to somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy, because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. Okay, verse 17. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing of God, the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. And you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, 
But remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. Isn't that a great passage? I mean, talk about... A picture really coming into focus. Wow, that we as Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people outside the chosen uh, lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, we are these wild olive branches. And God has chosen us, taken us carefully, tenderly, and grafted us in to His holy tree, His holy olive tree. And now we are able to draw from that root that root source, which is Jesus. And that's amazing to me. And he says that if the Jews would turn back, those who've been broken off through disobedience and an unwillingness to, to believe in Jesus, God will show the same kindness to them. He will take them and graft them back in to his tree. So what do we see going on here? We see that Jesus has broken off, or God has broken off disobedient branches of his olive tree. God has come and he has pruned back. He has cut off disobedient branches among Israel. And he has grafted in branches from this wild olive tree, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in, in their place. Now, why did God do this? Well, I can identify three reasons here. One, he did this to, number one, bring the nations into his family. God's ambition from the beginning has been to see all tribes and all tongues coming back into his family. And it just was beginning, just as it began with Abraham, and he saw the stars in the sky and said, hey, your descendants will outnumber the stars of the sky. Uh, God's ambition has always been to, through Abraham, through Israel, uh, to reach the world. Okay, so he broke off the original branches to bring the nations to, into his families. Two, to make the disobedient Jews jealous. It's like, I want to do something in front of them that will stir a jealousy inside of them, a longing to come back, and then third, to provoke them to return to the faith. It isn't just to make them jealous. It's actually kindle a desire in them for them to come back, to be participating then in the life with God once again. So he did it to bring the nations into his family, to make the disobedient Jews jealous, and then third, to provoke those Jews to return to the faith. God's desire is clear. God's desire is for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, to believe in Him and to become branches of His holy tree and to draw nourishment from the root source of His grace. Is that pretty clear? God's desire is that all would believe. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes. <laughs> he doesn't say Jews. He doesn't say just Gentiles. He says all, anyone who believes. His desire is that all people Jew and Gentile will believe on Jesus Christ and become branches of that holy tree and draw nourishment from that root source of His grace. So, in grafting the Gentiles in, here's the big idea for today. Notice this. God's ambition isn't to make Gentiles to be like the Jews. His desire is to make us like Jesus. 
God's ambition, His desire is to tap us in, to graft us in so that we can draw, live a life that is drawing from that living water that Jesus promised to the woman at Jacob's well. Helping us, inviting us to participate, to draw deeply from that root source that gives life to all. As faith in Jesus... As faith in Jesus spread across the Mediterranean world in the first and second century, we notice great unity. There was great unity. I mean, because understand, this was before the Bible was written down, before the New Testament was written down, before, I mean, Paul was writing letters, but the Gospels, they were pretty late in that first century. I mean, this was being passed on word or from mouths, I mean, uh, orally. And it was spreading across the Mediterranean world, and there was a remarkable consistency, a great unity of the message and the doctrine as it spread into new cultures. All these things were being passed on, the, the story of Jesus and how God was redeeming the world through Christ and His resurrection, how sin was being paid for through His, uh, his atoning death, His sacrificial death, substitutionary death. These things consistently traveled with great unity into the various cultures around the Mediterranean. Curiously, however, as the gospel spread beyond the Jewish wor world, the Jewish customs... And the mosaic practices, the ceremonial practices, they did not export with it. And understand, the gospel was being carried out beyond the Jewish world, mostly by Jewish believers. People that understood this, that were steeped in this and practiced in this, somehow they knew that as the, as the faith in Jesus spread outside of the Jewish context, certain things needed to be transmitted. Certain things needed to be exported, and other things did not. So the gospel spread beyond the Jewish world, and with it, we notice that the Jewish customs and mosaic ceremonial practices, they did not export with them. Now, this frustrated, this frustrated many Christian Jews who insisted that Gentiles behave like Jews. This was confusing and often frustrating to Christian Jews who thought that all believers, Gentile and Jew alike, had to participate uh, in... Uh, certain Jewish practices if they wanted to be a part of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These people were called Judaizers. Maybe you've heard this term. They were called Judaizers. They were Christian Jews that came in insisting upon Jewish practices for the non-Jewish adherents to faith in Jesus. So these Judaizers, they made it their mission to come and to pressure new non-Jewish believers into following the law in general, but more specifically, into getting circumcised. Basically, to bear the mark on their body of what it meant to be God's chosen people. So they thought that these Christians had to get circumcised if they wanted to be a part of this faith. The Judaizers, they equivocated circumcision with salvation itself. How can you be saved if you've not been circumcised? Clearly, this has long been the mark, and you must do it likewise. As a result, the apostles, the early church leaders, they found it necessary to intervene. They had to speak into this situation, they had to quash legalism, and they had to bring much-needed clarity both for the fledgling church, but also for us here today, because there are still Judaizers out there. Now, rarely do people come into our church and start telling me that I've got to see everyone get circumcised. I shut that, you need to know, I shut that down pretty quick when it happens, you know, that, you know, we're not there, okay? Uh, but there's still, 
things that happen like that. People have their novel ideas about how we ought to be practicing the Christian faith, that things we ought to be doing or not, ought not be doing in order to make God happier with us. Well, likewise, the apostles understood that as the church was growing and as the faith was spreading, they had to bring really much-needed clarity into how we go about following Jesus. So, here's our second extended passage. Look at Acts chapter 15. This is the narrative telling of what happened and how the apostles met together and how they went to a place called Antioch and had to intervene in that, in that confusion really bring clarity into a confusing um, legalistic situation. So we're looking at uh, Matthew, or, sorry, Acts 15, starting in verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. Unless you are circumcised, which if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your parents to help you Google that. Okay. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. What does vehemently mean? With passion. Right, yeah, feeling it very deeply. They argued with them vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much, they told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then, some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. Which, stop there. It's kind of interesting. Jesus always kind of had a rough, difficult uh, relationship with the Pharisees, right? But what does this tell us here? But then, some of the believers... Who belonged to the Pharisees? So yeah, God's even grafting those, those wily old Pharisees into the tree too. He's bringing them into his family of faith too. But there's still work to be done, right? So these Pharisees are like, hey, the Gentile converts, they must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as, as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and He confirmed that He accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for He cleansed their hearts through faith. So, why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written, Afterward I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. 
And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church elders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teachings, but we did not send them! Exclamation point. We, so we decided, having come to, ex, to complete agreement, we decided to send you official representatives along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm, confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. <laughs> it's kind of short, like, hey, farewell. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. And I love Acts. I love how it just, I mean, get it. What's going on here? We, we have saved for us the very letter, the text of the letter that was sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to uh, clarify this situation. That's saved for us to read. And in that, we gain insight in what God's up to and how God is working among us. The apostles made it clear. They wanted it to be very clear, and I think they did a great job. They made it clear. God chose the Gentiles. God knows people's hearts. Jew or Gentile alike, He's looking at their hearts, and He knows their hearts, and He accepts these people. He gives these people the Holy Spirit. He cleanses their hearts through faith, all by grace, and not through works, not through rule-keeping. Any requirements beyond faith in Jesus Christ put upon believers uh, something burdensome. To expect anything at root beyond faith in Jesus Christ is to, uh, is, to, is to bring about a dangerous distraction, something that is very unbiblical. So you might notice, though, that they did have some requirements like, hey, we think you shouldn't do anything except uh, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't, eat, uh, don't, have, don't, don't participate in sexual immorality, and don't eat uh, strangled animals or blood. So you want to read this part, and you're like, wait, what, what's that? He's like, you're so free in Christ. Uh, just don't eat strangled animals and uh, be sexually immoral. Well, consider the context. Why would they tell them to abstain from meat sacrificed idols, abstain from sexual immorality, and eating strangled animals in their blood? It's primarily to help them avoid the practice of idolatry, 
falling back into sin and uh, minimizing things that would cause offense in the fellowship. Where are they writing to? What do we know about Antioch? Antioch is one of the first places, I think it's the first place where we were called Christians, right? Uh, as kind of a jeering term, but we were called little Christ, you know, followers of Jesus. But, that's what, but Antioch was a crossroads of the world. From across the Roman Empire, east and west, the Roman Empire, I mean, ideas and religions, technology, all passed through Antioch. It became a crossroads of civilization. Likewise, or as such, in Antioch, there was the worship of almost every god imaginable. All the pagan pantheon of gods were worshipped in Antioch. So Gentile believers who had come to faith in Jesus and were now part of the church, what was their religious background? It was pagan worship, which largely involved sexual practices, sacrificing of animals, and certain dietary rituals that were now deemed as offensive. And now most people in the church had a backstory with those things. So this brings into focus then why the apostle said, hey, out of sensitivity, we need to draw a bold line around these things. I mean, sexual immorality has always been a, a clarion call among the faithful. Hey, be, be pure. Be pure. But in addition to those things, those ritual practices of these pagan religions, also, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Don't eat animals killed in this ritual ceremonial way. It have nothing to do with these things. So they were recent converts, and they wanted to make sure that there was nothing to cause offense in the fellowship. There are moral and spiritual guidelines in the church, but these are to be based on faith in Jesus. The moral guidelines that we do expect and, 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 and uh, hold to in the fellowship, they should be based on faith in Jesus and interpreted through Jesus' teachings and how he handles the law in the light of his resurrection. In that so that language of the resurrection. Do these things so that you can participate in the life with God. So that you can have a nourishing, vibrant connection with the root source. That you can be walking with a clear conscience and a purified heart in the life with Christ. We are called into freedom. So if you've been set free, be careful that you don't get caught back into slavery. So we have to be a lot wise, we have to be paying attention. So God's ambition isn't to make Gentiles Jewish. His desire is to make us all like Jesus. To bring us all in so that we can draw from His living water, that we can be connected to that root source through faith in Jesus. So, as a follower of Jesus, you are part of the church. You are part of the bride of Christ. That means that you have been grafted in. You you, friend, you have been grafted in to the tree of faith. You have tapped into the root of Jesse, into the one who creates and sustains all that exists. In him, you indeed, you live, you move, and you have your very being. Now, you are a branch that has been grafted in. And you are adding your, the variety. You're adding variety to the family of, of the Christian faith. You bring something unique and special into God's family. The idea isn't that you become like me or I become like you. Ours is to become like Jesus in that particular wonderful and weird way that only you can do. You're grafted in and you bring variety into the family of Christian faith. You are producing your particular kind of gospel fruit in this family, among your friends, in the context of this particular Christian community.
Isn't that great to think about? That there's a, a diversity, a, a variety, a, 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 an assortment of ways that God's goodness is showing up in us through the spiritual fruits. Now, Christianity is unique. Among other world religions, Christianity is unique. Christianity does not cancel out indigenous culture. It comes in and it doesn't cancel out, it doesn't stamp out indigenous culture. That's why the church is thriving in Africa among African believers. And they're very much African. Uh, in China, the church is spreading and growing, and it's still just Chinese people practicing the Christian faith, speaking and worshiping the name of Jesus. And they're still Chinese. Other religions uh, demand that adherents conform, that they conform to certain ways of dress, they conform to certain diets, or they, they conform to certain customs of culture, uh, of that culture in which that religion originated. Think of uh, Buddhism, of Islam, of Hinduism, or even Judaism. If you become an adherent to these faiths, then you have to start wearing certain things, doing certain things, eating certain things, or not eating other certain things. But the Christian faith, despite several historical bad examples of missionary efforts, where people have tried to import certain cultures with it, uh, despite those bad examples, the Christian faith finds its faithful voice and its cultural expression wherever it takes root. This is why if you travel the world and you visit a church, it's going to look nothing like hope and anchor. But you're going to pick up on the word Jesus. You're going to hear songs in their native tongue, and they're going to be adoring and worshiping Jesus in their own way, in their own fashion. But it's all pointing toward the same King, Jesus. Faith in Jesus produces authentic worship in every tribe and tongue. Now, someone will say, well, I heard that Christianity is a white man's religion. Anyone ever heard these things? Well, Christianity is a white man's religion. Um, don't Christians just come in and colonize people with a white Jesus? Well, the short answer is no. No. Uh, actually, no. You may have experienced a white man's expression or white man's version of the Christian faith, but it is not a white man's religion. Uh, this statement, to hear someone say that, betrays both ignorance of history and also of current realities. We live in a bubble. <laughs> okay, Our experience of the Christian faith may be very white. Maybe very Anglo, maybe very Midwestern, maybe very American, but that's not the case globally. Did you know that Christianity is actually an Eastern religion, not a Western religion? It did not start in the West. It is actually considered an Eastern religion. Uh, it was founded and disseminated almost entirely by and among brown-skinned people. Brown-skinned people of, of Palestine, of Africa, Arabia, Syria, Turkey, Greece, it originated in what's called the Near East. Only later did it spread westward. Only later did it spread into the Roman Empire and into what we call modern-day Europe. And get this, today, only around 10% of Christians globally live in North America. That should be eye-popping to you. Only one out of ten Christians on the planet live in North America. Yet most of us assume that most Christians are here and that we're the ones sending Christians around the world to do good works and to save the rest of them. Guys, 
Only about 10% live in North America. 25% uh, or so are in South America. 25% or so are spread across European continent. 25% or so are in Africa. And the other 15% or so are in Asia. So we're kind of bringing up the back of the parade here, right? Only 10% of, uh, of Christians live in North America. What does this mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but it also means it's hard to say that Christianity is white. Okay? Uh, additionally, the organization with which I work called uh, SEND Network, which is the church planting arm of the North American Mission Board, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, SEND Network just last year planted almost 900 churches in North America. Almost 900 churches. And of those churches planted in the U.S. and Canada, 60% of them were non-Anglo. So six out of ten churches planted just last year were non-Anglo, basically for ethnic groups in the United States and in Canada. That means six out of ten churches were among non-whites. And I said we're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, which you may know a little bit of history. For a denomination that has, a, has some shameful racist beginnings, it is, becoming, it is rapidly becoming one of the most racially diverse Christian denominations on the planet. I mean, it's just a picture of how God can redeem a broken thing and make it beautiful and make it faithful. Um, God is raising up non-Anglo pastors in North America to bring the gospel to our increasingly non-Anglo U.S. context. What this tells me is that the future, of the, United, the, the future of the church in the United States is brown. I heard a stat at this training, at this event I was at, that said, you know, by the year 2030 in the United States and in Canada, by the year 2030, one-third of Southern Baptist churches planted, or one-third of existing Southern Baptist churches will have been planted since 2010. So by 2030, one-third of the Southern Baptist churches that exist by, in 2030 will have been planted in the past 20 years. And if this statistic holds true, 60% of those will be for the nations. It will be for ethnic groups among us. And that's pretty exciting to me. So, to finish up, once we understand how grafting works and why this metaphor is so central to the idea of God's mission in the world, we have cause to celebrate. We can celebrate. Jesus' big idea is for the people of God, Jesus' big idea is for the people of God to be from every tribe and tongue. Jesus' big idea is for the people of God, uh, it's to be from every tribe and tongue, every people and nation gathered around the throne, worshiping in faith. That is what a good day looks like to God. Every tribe and tongue, every people and nation gathered around the throne, worshiping in their multitude of languages, worshiping the king, worshiping the lamb. Imagine an apple tree with a diversity of branches producing a variety of apples with every branch and every apple drawing life and vitality from the same root source. Faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine this tree with its branches waving in the bright sunshine of God's love, celebrating with gladness the multiculturality of the gospel. That the faith you and I share, it's finding its voice, it's finding its place. People are embracing it all around the world. People that look and live very differently than you and me, they are worshiping the same King Jesus in their own way. And it's a beautiful thing. 
Tim Keller once tweeted, uh, the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. I love that. It's like, yes, the gospel is an exclusive truth. It makes exclusive truth claims. However, it is the most inclusive exclusive truth in the whole world. What this means is that all are welcome. All are welcome in God's family through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way, but all may come. All may come. All are welcomed in to this belief in the one true Son of God, Jesus Christ. All are welcome in God's family through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way, but all may come. God's ambition isn't to make the Gentiles to be like the Jews. It is to make us all be more like Jesus and to invite us all to draw from His living water to be part of that root source through faith. So today... May the Holy Spirit begin a work in you, a new work in you, grafting you in, nourishing you in the faith, growing you to produce your particular variety of fruit for the glory of God and for the blessing of the world. And then, may the church be a living celebration of the inclusive exclusivity of the gospel. May the church be a picture of that faithful diversity we'll find in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I'll finish up with a closing meditation. Uh, you can turn to Revelation 5, or you can just listen. But this is like a fast-forward. This is a fast-forward, uh, catching a vision of what's going on around the throne in heaven. In the throne room of heaven, at the end of all things, where is this all headed? Well, it's a picture that looks something like this in Revelation 5, 6-14. through 14. John writes, Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. You were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders, and they all sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would hear your word today. I pray that we would be filled with hope. I pray that we would also be challenged to understand that the ways you're at work in the world, the ways you've been at work in, in creation, it's been all about Jesus. It's about inviting people from every tribe and tongue, every people and nation to come around and to worship at the throne. So God, I pray that we would be careful. I pray that we would be sensitive to the uh, 
the other things we've included, the other things we've added in, those gospel plus assumptions we make in our faith, that people can believe in Jesus, but they also have to do this other thing. The ways we inject our culture into uh, the call to salvation, the way we inject our culture into uh, the life of faith. God, I pray that you would cleanse us of that, just as you had to cleanse the early church in Antioch. Because we can't just read this about the Judaizers, and we can't just read about these Pharisees that came to faith but still held on to their customs. It's not just something they did, it's something we do. We do these kind of things, and we have this propensity, this tendency. And so, God, I pray that you'd free us from that. I pray that we would be primed for celebration. That we'd be quick to celebrate the diversity of what you're doing and who you're calling to yourself. I pray that uh, we would understand that we have been grafted in. We have been called into your family. Lord, I pray that we'd be quick to celebrate and slow to criticize. Understanding that it is all an act of your grace, an unmerited act of your mercy. So God, uh, may we see the beauty of the image of grafting, being grafted in. We thank you for your mercy shown to us. May we be hopeful that others would see the work you're doing in our midst and they would join in that they too would have faith in Jesus and they'd find themselves tapped into that root source that gives life, that gives freedom, that gives joy. So God, do a work here today. Challenge us, convict us, free us, we ask. Lord, we make this prayer in Jesus' name, the root source. Thank you for Jesus. Hey, we're going to share communion. It is the first Sunday of the month and this is when we get to come to the table. We get to take the cup and the bread and remember the sacrifice Christ made for us, His body broken for us, His blood shed for us, the way by which God brought us all back in, the way He began His grafting work in you, in us. It started here. And so we come and we remember today. So this is an important, meaningful moment for us. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you some time to prepare, to sit with the Lord, to examine your life. Say, God, help me remember Help me recall, help me celebrate what you've done in my life. May I live in alignment with that? May I stop trying to draw nourishment from other sources? May I tap deeply into my root source I have in you? After a time of introspection and preparation, I'm going to ask you to come and take a cup, take some bread, and then go back to your seat and hold on to it till everyone's served. Now, who can partake? Well, this is for those who remember what Christ has done for them. It's clearly for those who have trusted in Jesus, who have entered into that life of faith, to follow after Him. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, you can place your faith in Him right now and be part of those who've been grafted in, who've been given new life in Jesus through the power of His life, His death, and His resurrection. And you can participate. So it's for those who can remember what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing for you. So I'd pray that you would come. So, once you come down the center aisle, take the bread, the cup, you can return down the side aisles, and then once everyone is served, we will partake together.